for truth. Thank you for the truth of what you've done and who you are. Um, help us, Lord, this morning in Christ with purity of heart to celebrate you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So as Mark said when we were... Um, when he was doing the opening here today, we, we, for those of you that call Mercy Hill home, over the summer we've been doing a walkthrough of our doctrinal statement. We've been taking some pretty big, uh, big and important doctrinal topics, really some foundations, fundamentals of the faith, of what we believe as Christians, and we've just been walking through it. Today we're going to finish that up. Today is one um, that is, that is uh, heavy, yet we do not in any way shy away from heavy things because we believe the Bible, and we want to talk about what the Bible talks about, uh, and even try to talk about what the Bible talks about in proportion to the measure that the Bible talks about it. And the Bible talks a lot, a lot about this, is that all of us are going to die, because the wages of sin is death, and our physical bodies are going to die, um, and when we die, we will not cease to exist, but there is an eternal state. Um, and if we know Jesus, it is a resurrection unto life. And if we do not know Jesus, it is a resurrection unto death. And um, this is heavy stuff, and I pray that the Lord would give us uh, hearts that are able uh, to receive it. Um, this message of eternity and where every person will spend eternity is very central to the message of the gospel. In fact, when we ask the question... Um, am I saved, or if we've ever asked the question to somebody, are you saved, what we're primarily speaking of is knowing that when we die, we will go to heaven uh, to be with Jesus, is that the primary thing that he has saved us from, although there are, there are, other, there, there are countless benefits in Christ, and we've talked about many of those um, over the summer as we've looked at our doctrinal statement together, but, um, but what we're primarily speaking of is that we've been saved from the wrath of God. And not only have we been saved from that wrath, but we've been saved to or for heaven, which is a place of, un, of unspeakable joy. And, and I, I feel like, and I'm going to paint with some per, pretty broad strokes here, so give me a little grace. This might not be your experience, but I feel like it's been the experience of many, um, and it's also something that's happened in our culture, is that over the course of at least my lifetime, I'm 41 years old, uh, I feel, uh, and, and probably beyond that, the last 50, 60 years, uh, there, there's, there's been a, a, a shift where I think because of in a previous generation, at times so much emphasis was put on heaven and hell and on eternity, and not that that's wrong, but it, the implication um, because, uh, because of the focus on heaven and hell was just simply basically to kind of like circle the wagons, circle the wagons, and then just wait to be raptured out of this mess. Um, that I feel like the pendulum has swung in the church at large to where we've tried to make the practical implications of the gospel uh, more, more uh, pronounced or more relevant. And so we've, we've swung the pendulum to the other side to where now it seems to be all about pragmatics and just the practical implications and how to get Jesus in the Bible to work for you that we've forgotten about eternity. We've forgotten about e eternity. Um, and as disciples of Jesus Christ, uh, we do believe that the good news of the saving grace that is found only through faith in Christ, it will change your life radically in the here and now. But it changes our life in the here and now precisely because our eternal destination has been changed and is secure in Christ. For those of you that call Mercy Hill home, there's this quote. You've probably heard me say it before. For those of you that are regulars here, I, I've, I've shared this quote more than any other quote outside of Scripture since we started the church, and it's from C.S. Lewis. He said, those who've made the biggest difference in this world are precisely those who have thought most about the next world. Aim for heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim for earth and you miss both. And I believe that that is wholeheartedly true. Several years ago, um, we were meeting with Steve and Ruth Mann. Steve and Ruth Mann are missionaries that we support in a closed country in northern Africa. And uh, we were meeting with them at our old hub down in Sugar Creek. And I remember we were meeting with them. We were sitting around the table just kind of getting to know their story and know their heart for the gospel and what you know, God was calling them to do. And this is, this is pretty simple, but yet it's right at the heart of who we should be as Christians in sharing our faith. At one point, uh, she said of them sharing the gospel, this was Ruth, uh, Steve's wife, 
She said, what we are doing does not make any sense in this life. But if heaven is real, then it makes all the sense in the world. And again, simple, and I think we would all agree with that, but profound, and are we actually living in light of that? I I was talking with an auto mechanic not long ago, and he was telling me about um, the issue, I guess this is a real issue, um, of getting bad fuel in your car. Is it certain gas stations, you know, it's basically like watered down fuel, and it really messes up the engine. In fact, he said they've had uh, more than one situation where the person brought the car in, and they were sure that it needed a new engine, that the engine needed to be replaced. (coughs) Excuse me. But in reality, the problem was bad fuel. The problem was bad fuel. Um, And I think that Christians, uh, we, we tend to have the same issue, is that we try to live lives for the glory of Christ, but we're running on bad fuel. We're not running on the fuel of eternity. We're running on the fuel of just... Uh, successful results and pragmatic implications and practical outcomes. In other words, just how to get Jesus in the Bible just to work for you. But throughout history, again, the people that have made the most impact by the grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit in this world are precisely those who have thought most about the next world. And they were fueled not by just having some successful outward results, but they were fueled by eternity, by eternity. And so I say all that because what I want to look at this morning as we finish up our doctrinal statement and we look at the reality of the final judgment, I want us to prepare our hearts just right now, just momentarily. Ask the Lord to give you a heart to be able to receive the weighty truth that we're going to talk about because it is weighty and it is heavy, but we cannot shy away from it. We cannot shy away from it. And I pray that as we speak about it, that for any of us that find ourselves in different areas of our lives kind of spitting and sputtering along, in our Christian life, like a car that's running on, on bad fuel, um, I pray that this morning that God would, by his Holy Spirit, um, fill us with the fresh fuel of what his word says about eternity. Um, there's a lot to say on the topic, so as we've been going through each one of these over the summer, these different top, uh, topical headings um, or doctrinal headings, we're not going to be able to talk about it exhaustively, uh, but there's just three Uh, questions, big questions that I want to ask and answer for us as we go through it this morning. And those questions are this. Number one, what happens to us when we die? Number two, what happens when Jesus comes back? And number three, as disciples of Jesus Christ, for those of us that know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, how are we to view the day when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ? Okay? So what happens when we die? What happens when Jesus comes back? And those two things are different for those that know Jesus and those that don't. And then third, as disciples, those who have trusted in Christ, how are we to view the day when the Bible says all of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ? So first of all, we gotta take the first two questions kind of together and we have to look at them um, for what the Bible says about those who know Jesus as their Savior, and then we have to look at it, take those two questions and answer them for those who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And again, we just want to look at what the Bible says. First of all, what happens to those who die in Christ? Those who have trusted in Christ alone for salvation. Again, we're adamant here that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the alone in those statements is important. You cannot add to it. Um, what happens to a Christian, to a disciple, when they die? Here's the answer, and this, is, this part is actually true for, for both, is that there is no loss of spiritual consciousness. So to die physically is not to cease to exist. But the immaterial part of you, your soul, is, goes on to eternity. For those that know Jesus, the souls of those that know Jesus immediately pass into the presence of Jesus and await the resurrection of their bodies in the new creation when Jesus comes back. Let me say that again. If you die as a Christian, your soul immediately passes into the presence of Jesus, where you will await one day when Jesus comes back, the resurrection of your new physical body that you will live in in the new creation that Christ is going to bring. Now, does the Bible say this? Let me show you. Okay? First of all, a couple places. We, we are going to read a lot of Bible today. 
okay? We've been doing this as we've been taking every one of these doctrinal uh, headings through the summer, but we're going to lead, read a lot of Bible today, so just prepare yourself for that. First of all, very simple place to start. In Luke chapter 23, verse 43, Jesus is saying on the cross, there's one sinner that rejects him, there's another that cries out for mercy, essentially, and Jesus says to him, he said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Is that that man was, was literally in the process of death. He was hanging on the cross, receiving the judgment he deserved. But Jesus, in his grace and mercy, told him that today he would be with him in paradise simply because he looked to the Son, because he looked to Jesus. Paul is adamant about this. Paul states this many places in his letters and in his epistles in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 through 23. And again, Paul was definitely a man who had a great impact in this world, but it was precisely because he was looking forward to the next world. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, he says, For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Can you say that? Can you say that with sincerity? Not just quote the verse, but can you say that and mean that? That to die is gain? That means it's better for you to die? He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. Who talks like this other than somebody who is certain that heaven is for real? He says, I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ for that is far better. But oh, how we love this world. How we love this world. But not for Paul. He knew that to depart and to be with Christ was far better. Paul says something similar in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. <coughs> and again, um, some of these are going to be on the back of your paper, on your handout. Um, I'm, I'm kind of jumping all around. We're going to cover more than just is on the handout, but you might find some of them there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. It says, So we are always of good courage. And we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And we're going to come back to that verse towards the end of this message and talk more specifically about the judgment seat of Christ and what that is. This is not something that was just um, talked about in the New Testament, as is sometimes taught, but throughout history, this has been the great hope of God's people, is that there's going to be a resurrection from the dead. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah, in uh, chapter 26, verses 19 through 21, he says, or verse 19 anyway, he says, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. In, in Daniel chapter 12, again, another Old Testament prophet, verse 2, he says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Job, as he was going through great suffering, says these famous verses that you, you may have heard before. They're beautiful. Job chapter 19, starting in verse 25, he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet my, in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. Job looked forward to that day with both certainty and with hope and with joy and for comfort, but also with a reverent fear and trembling that he was going to stand before his creator one day. In Revelation chapter 6, Verse 9 through 11, it says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, listen, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge your blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Paul, or I'm sorry, the, the Apostle John turns and he sees souls under the altar. The moment that a believer dies in Christ, we pass into the presence of Jesus, waiting the resurrection of our bodies. Now let's speak, a, let me show you a little bit about what the Bible says about this resurrection of the bodies that is going to happen 
at Christ's return. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. For those of you that call Mercy Hill home, starting next week, we're going to jump into the book of First uh, and Second Thessalonians in our Bible reading plan, and so we'll be talking more about this, but let's look at it briefly now together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Okay, so there he's speaking, there are people that have died in Christ. We probably in this room all have loved ones that have died knowing Jesus. They are now with Jesus. Their soul is with Jesus. They are with him in his presence. When Jesus comes back, he is going to bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Verse 15, he goes on, he says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So, you know, the, the Thessalonian church had this question, how is this going to work? Like, if you've already died in Christ, but you keep telling us that Jesus is coming back someday, how's that going to work? If we're still here and alive when he comes, what's, what's that going to look like? Paul's answering that question. He's saying, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Just a little side note here, it's going to be really, really loud. Okay, if you don't like loud things, too bad, um, because it's going to be loud. With a, Think about the Lord, a cry of command, commanding those, that have, those bodies that are dead and in the grave, come forth, just like he told Lazarus, come forth. Someday all those who have died in Christ, souls now in heaven, is going to say, come forth with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. If God has a trumpet, it's big and it's loud. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So those who have already died, they will be caught up together. They will receive their new body. Verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with the Lord in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, what does he say? What's, what's the point of this? Just so we can wax eloquent about it and hold a doctrinal position? No. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the great hope of Christians throughout history. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, again, speaking of the resurrection from the dead, I'm going to skip around here a little bit. We just don't have time to cover all of it. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll start in verse 20. <coughs> Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God uh, the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and after destroying every authority. Jump down to verse 42 of the same chapter. Paul continues on. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable, these perishable bodies that are, that are breaking down, okay? I used to, man, I, my boys right now, you know, they're, Ephraim's almost 17, they're 15. They can, they can literally eat Cocoa Krispies. And I mean, not that this is all they eat. All they eat. Their mama feeds them good. Okay, I just want to make that clear. But, they could eat Cocoa Krispies and, and potato chips, and they just, they don't gain any fat whatsoever. Um, and they run around, they have all sorts of energy. My body, on the other hand, is breaking down like crazy. Um, and this is what he's saying, is that all of our bodies, they're, they're breaking down, they're broken. I, I, I mean, I've told you this before, and it always gets a giggle, but it's 100% true. I injure myself while sleeping. It's, it's true. Like, I wake up and I'm like, oh my gosh, what in the world? You know, it's just, like, why? Because my, our bodies are breaking, are breaking down. They're perishable. That's what Paul's saying. But it's sown perishable, it will be raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a, a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it, is not as, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. This death is going to precede life. Death and then resurrection. Just a few more places in the same chapter. 
uh, verse 49 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, is that we are going to be made new. We are going to be glorified with Christ, made in the image of Christ. Satan, sin, and death destroyed. Paul goes on in verse 50, he says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And he's speaking there of this present flesh and blood. Cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit that which is imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Um, when you die as a Christian, you immediately pass into the presence of the Lord and you await there the time and the date that only the Father knows when he is going to come back and going to bring the consummation of all things. Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is absolutely coming, just like God the Father orchestrated history under his complete sovereign plan to bring about the first coming of Christ, born of a virgin, his death, burial, and resurrection, just as God had planned. In the same way, he is working all of history to this next end, this next part in the saga of redemptive history, where Christ is going to come back. Um, we will be raised with new bodies. And uh, this is, uh, there's a lot that could be said here, just very briefly. Um, our bodies are, are broken, sinful, they are wasting away, but the body is not in and of itself bad. God created us, body, soul, and spirit. The body was a good thing that he created. And just like everything else, because of sin, it's now become broken and tainted and has evil desires, um, not just good ones. But, but we're going to receive these new bodies. And, and here, um, two things are true. One is there will be no more pain, no more pain. For those of you that have suffered, for those of you that have had loved ones that have suffered, there's going to be no more pain. But, but here's the thing. It's not just that these new bodies are not going to experience pain, but they will be specifically, perfectly designed to not just not experience pain, but to experience inexpressible glory. Inexpressible glory. If you've ever, I mean, think about it. God could have made all food taste like cardboard. And he could have said, just eat it, because you got to eat it to survive. Okay, that's the deal. But that's not what he did. He created steak and a good cheeseburger. You know, broccoli, not so much. But um, <laughs> he created the filet, marsala, at Carabas. The mushroom sauce, oh, so good. He, he created us with taste buds to be able to experience that and to enjoy it to his glory. Okay? But what I'm saying is that this new resurrection body, that, that experience is like, like tasting food or in, enjoying a nice breeze on a hot summer day or sex or what, whatever it is. God, that, all of those things in the, that we experience in this life that we call good, that will be like cardboard compared to these new resurrection bodies that we will have that will be able, that will be perfectly designed and to experience this inexpressible glory. See, right now, these, these broken bodies, it's kind of like, did any of you guys, well, maybe you don't want to raise your hand for this, but whatever. Um, but if, if you had COVID, you know, some people, you had COVID and then like stuff doesn't taste the same to you now as it used to. Like some people I know like had like, you know, like a favorite drink or something and now after having getting COVID, it just messed something up. And it's like, now it's like, ah, oh, they, they can't enjoy that anymore. It doesn't taste the same. Anybody? No? Okay. But, um, but you know what I'm talking about. You've heard about it at least. And, and that's, that's kind of like our experience here on this earth. We, we know that there's something good. We know that there's something that we've, we kind of like tasted a little bit, but, but now it's gone and it's, and it's broken. But someday, God is going to give us these bodies that are going to be able to experience ever-increasing pleasure and joy forever. And it is all going to be to the glory of God. That just like now, when for, for the Christian, again, unbelievers can enjoy the steak with the mushroom marsala sauce on it at Carabas. But what they can't say, because they don't know Jesus, is praise God for this. This is awesome. And so we, any good pleasure that we experience in this life, we roll it up into praise and worship. 
to the glory of God the Father. And we will do that for all of eternity. We will be specifically designed to enjoy the fullness of God's glory. Yet so much in this life, and we have to understand this about our brokenness and as the, the result of sin, is that we're, 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 trying to, we're trying to hook up to that pleasure. This is what I think everybody's doing, both Christian and non-Christian. We're running around. We're trying to find that pleasure that's found only in Christ. It's found only in him. But it's kind of like, have you ever um, really needed your phone charged? And uh, for those of you that um, have the right type of phone, an iPhone, um, and uh, I'm not a fan of Samsung, but anyway, I don't even know why I said that. Anyway, but you have an iPhone, and you're trying to, and you want to go plug it in, and you see a charger, and you grab it, and then, though, it's a dreaded Samsung charger. And you're like, you know, you, try, you want to fit it, and it just doesn't, it just doesn't fit. You just can't get plugged in. I feel like that's, that's our experience and it's our common experience here in this fallen world is that we want to get plugged in to the power but it's, sometimes we get it, sometimes we don't. It's close and yet not enough. There's going to be a day when every tear is going to be wiped away from every eye of those that know Jesus and we will be plugged into him and experience his glory fully as we ought to be. It is a glorious day and we are to encourage one another with these truths, that when we die, we will be with him, and when he comes back, we will receive resurrection bodies to enjoy the pleasure of his presence forevermore. Now, let's talk about the same thing about those who die apart from Christ. Those who die apart from Christ. When someone dies apart from Christ, they immediately pass into a place called Hades, a place of punishment and torment and utter darkness where they will remain until they too receive a resurrection body that will be thrown into the lake of fire. Again, extremely heavy, extremely sobering, absolutely true. Because the Bible says it adamantly. Again and again and again. In John chapter 5 verse 28, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And they will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Paul spoke of this just in passing in Acts chapter 24. Um, he says, but this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and men. In Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 11, the Apostle John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. So when somebody dies apart from Christ, they immediately go to this place of death and Hades. But one day, the judgment, even death and Hades, will give up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. <coughs> I know this is heavy, but do not turn away from it. Look at it full on. And let the reality of the next world motivate the way you live in this world in holiness and purity and in the fear of the Lord, but also in sharing the gospel. And if you're here this morning and you don't know where you're going when you die because you don't know Jesus, right now where you sit, I pray for you that by faith you will simply receive him. But to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says that salvation is by grace through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not by works so that no man can boast. Romans chapter 3 says that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. All those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Do that right now where you sit.
because the realities that we are talking about are true. Probably the most sobering, most detailed uh, place where Jesus himself spoke about the afterlife, for those who do not know Christ, are in Luke, is in Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, you may want to turn there. Um, yeah, this is not on your paper. Um, but in Luke chapter 16, you have this story of the rich man and Lazarus. This is Luke chapter 16. It's 19 through 31. Again, we could spend a whole morning on this. I got to go fast, so I'm going to start reading here so you understand the story. It says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man, Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed." in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said that, then, I, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if someone should rise from the dead. Now, very quickly, the point of this story is not that rich people go to hell and that poor people go to heaven. In the context of the story, Jesus is talking uh, to the Pharisees who were lovers of money, who did not trust in him, who they themselves schemed to have Jesus crucified uh, on the earthly, from an earthly perspective or on the earthly scheme. Um, and, uh, and he had just got done saying, you cannot serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money because you'll love one and hate the other one. And then the Pharisees scoffed at this, and Jesus told them this story. Now, you have to understand that um, <laughs> that's the context of it, but the reason this is instructive for us uh, to look at here briefly this morning is that what you have here is something extremely unique. You have a testimony as told by Jesus, but it's a testimony of a man told from the very pits of hell. It is a testimony from the very pits of hell. And it is a blessed warning that Jesus gives it to us here in this place. Um, and I just want to point out a couple things about Hades, about hell, about this place that everyone that dies apart from Christ goes the moment after they take their last breath here on earth. Number one is decisive. There was no like in between. There was no purgatory. There was no like, well, I'm going to be in this place and it's not as great as heaven, but I'm here right now and maybe if I do a little bit better, then I'll be able to make it back to heaven because I know I've got some things that I've got to pay for. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says, and just as it is appointed to man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. It is appointed to man to die once and then judgment. What you do with Christ in this life, what you do with Christ here this morning, is, has eternal importance. There's no other way around it. He was decisively in a place of torment. Secondly, um, it was conscious and excruciating. Um, I, when I, when I, and I say conscious because like, he was very much aware. His soul was very much aware of the torment that he was in. Again, I know this is heavy to look at, but it is in the scripture for a reason. And when I say consciously excruciating, what I mean is like even in this life when there's something really painful. Like I remember... Um, when I broke my neck, I had neck surgery. The doctor told me beforehand, he's like, when you wake up, it's going to feel like somebody stuck a hatchet in your back. And apparently, this is what I'm told. I don't really remember this. But when I woke up from surgery, I woke up throwing punches and maybe, maybe some unresolved anger issues. I don't really know. But, um, but, uh, but I woke up throwing punches and then I passed out again. Um, you're not going to be passed out 
It's conscious and excruciating. Three, it's irrevocable. What you do with Christ in this life matters forever. And, and let me just say this because I think, you know, like, yes, <laughs> heaven isn't just a place for people that don't want to go to hell. It's a place for people who have decided to follow Jesus, who love Christ, who've been saved, who, who want to worship him. But all these warnings are in the scripture so that we would respond to it. And you decide, you choose where you spend eternity, and it all comes down to what you do with Christ. Will you give him your life, or will you hang on, and will you be Lord of your life? Or will you surrender to him? This, it was irrevocable. Again, we don't have time to go into all the details. He couldn't, no one could pass one way or the other. It was done. Secondly, it was eternal. This was everlasting, like forever. We don't have a time to go through the list of all the scriptures. Eternal judgment, eternal destruction. The smoke of their torment, Revelation says, goes up forever and ever. You know what that means? Forever and ever. And fifth, because all these things are true, this is absolutely hopeless. Even in this life, when things get as bad as they can possibly get. There's always hope. There's the hope of eternal life. There's the hope that something will maybe even change in this life, that Jesus can do anything. But for those of us who know Christ, our ultimate hope is eternal life. Again, to live as Christ and die as gain, as Paul said. But this here, there is no hope. Every single one of us in this room has regrets. I'm sure we do. I, I know I do. I've got a thousand things I wish I would have done differently. But there's always hope because Jesus is gracious, because he's faithful. We continue to go forward trusting him. But the, the regret, besides the physical conscious torment that you will experience, the regret that you will live with forever the regret that this rich man endured forever. Just because he wanted to go back and change something didn't mean that he could. We always kick the can down the road thinking that we'll deal with it later. But when you're here, it's too late. Just a few clues in the passage. And again, um, the Bible is adamant about this as in many of those places that I've already stated, but Lazarus, it's a Greek translation of the Hebrew name Eleazar, which means God saves or God helps. He's taken to Abraham's side again, I think is another clue that Abraham is the father of our faith. The Bible's clear both in the book of Genesis, but also Paul unpacks much of this in the book of Romans, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And we too are sons of Abraham when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, just like he did. Um, the reality uh, of the gospel um, is that we too are like Lazarus. We are crippled, we are sick, we are incapable of caring for our own souls. Again, if, if works had anything to do with it, if works were the determining factor in salvation, what could Lazarus do? He couldn't even take care of himself, let alone serve anybody else. But God helped him. God saved him. Um, and we too are like Lazarus, crippled, sick, incapable of caring for our own souls. But God, who is a God who saves, who is a God who helps, um, he helps us, <laughs> and he sent his son. And in order for us to avoid this judgment of eternal conscious torment and to be delivered from the curse of our own sin, he sent his son to become a curse for us. Is that Jesus endured on the cross the punishment that we deserve, 
Galatians chapter 3. Paul says, for all who rely on the works of the law, and brothers and sisters, I want you to hear this closely this morning. Please listen to this. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that's us, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. If you think that there is something you can do or something that you have done or something that you can maybe do in the future to make yourself right with God, you need to repent of that belief because it's wrong. God sent his son to bear the punishment that you deserved and God made him who had no sin to be sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the great exchange. That's simply by faith. Christ takes our punishment and we get his righteousness. When you do that, it's as though we've been laid at the gate of a better rich man. Not the rich man in this story, but the rich man from heaven named Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. We've been laid at a better gate, at the gate of Jesus. He does not pass us by. He does not just feed us crumbs from his table, but he brings us in. He heals our wounds. He binds us up and he sits us at his table and he makes us part of his family. Amazing. So if you're here this morning, you do not know Christ. Trust him right now. Third question I want to answer for those of us that know Jesus Christ as our Savior. How are we to view the future judgment seat of Christ when the Bible says we will stand before him? Very quickly, let me show you where I'm getting this term. I read one of them earlier. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, For we, speaking of Christians, Paul's saying, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In Romans chapter 14, listen carefully. He, in verse 10 he says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother, or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that to confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account to God himself. So this is what the judgment seat is, is that every Christian is going to stand before God one day. Now, I say this because I think there's two ditches on either sides of the road that I see Christians falling into with this. One is that, um, we, we, as I've already said, we're so to look forward to heaven, but because we don't rightly understand what the judgment seat is, it's actually a time of just complete dread that we don't look forward to at all. Okay, and I want to be abundantly clear here. Okay, the judgment seat of Christ is not going to be to determine our final destination, but it is going to be to determine the degree of our reward. Our judgment has already happened on Christ. Jesus himself said this in John chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Listen, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So when he speaks of judgment there, in John chapter 5, verse 24, he's speaking of eternal destination. However, we are going to stand before this judgment seat of Christ. And so one ditch on one side of the road is that we just fear this day and we don't look forward to it with any joy. As, as I've already sh showed from the scriptures and we could go to a thousand different places, we are clearly to look forward to it, okay? But there's a ditch on the other side of the road that I think treats it very flippantly, he says, oh yeah, we're just going to, you know, Jesus is just going to be handing out some rewards there. It's, it's, it's no big deal. This will be, Paul never speaks of it this way. He speaks of it in a way that we are to be, yes, we are to look forward to it, but we are to be sobered by it as well. With an, we, we are to, if I could just put it this way, we are to, an, to have an attitude that should be one of both, both good courage and reverent fear. And I get those, that, that little phrase, good courage, if you'll go back in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, right before he says, verse 10, where he's speaking of the judgment seat, 
In chapter 5, verse 6, he says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Verse 8, yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil is that it is not going to be to determine final destination. It is going to be to determine the degree of reward. However, our attitude towards it should absolutely be one of good courage, but at the same time of reverent fear. In Revelation chapter 11, um, again, I want you to listen to how it, it speaks here of Christ's coming. Revelation chapter 11 Verse 15 says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones fell before God on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Listen, the nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. The Bible also speaks that someday when we stand before Jesus, even as Christians, that it will be an experience somewhat of fire. And the Bible says that our God is himself a consuming fire. And there will be moments of our life that have been done in faith and sincerity to honor and glory, to glorify him as moments of worship that will um, pass through the judgment. And there will be other moments that were done in the flesh that will burn up. This is what Paul's speaking of in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Listen, I, and again, I, I know we're, hang with me here, we're almost done, okay? I know I'm throwing a lot at you. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ alone is foundation. There can be no question about the foundation. If Jesus Christ is not at the foundation of your life, you do not have salvation. Verse 12, he goes on though. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw. So you've got two categories. Gold, silver, precious stones, things of value, things that are only refined by fire, not consumed by them. And then you have wood, hay, and straw as the other category, things that are consumed by fire. Each one's work will become manifest for the day. And the day there, many of your Bibles might be capitalized, it's speaking of the day of the Lord. And he comes back, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, in other words, if he's built upon the foundation, he's speaking to Christians here. If he's built upon the foundation with wood, hay, and straw, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved because Jesus is the foundation but only as one escaping through fire. Is that one day we will stand before Jesus. Um, he will be the judge, the consuming fire. Uh, and it's because of what he did that we will pass into heaven through eternity. But we will give an account. We will give an account. And we should look forward to it with good courage, but reverent fear. Probably the most, the picture, and I'll wrap up here, and we'll be done. And if you're getting baptized, if you want to go out there where I told you to go, and we'll get ready to do that here in just a second So I wrap up. But probably the, uh, the place in the scripture that I think maybe helps us understand experientially what it will be like to stand before Jesus on that day as Christians at the judgment seat of Christ is in Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. And I want to be clear here, this is not, John is not at the judgment seat, but what I'm saying is, is I believe our experience at the judgment seat, because of what Christ has done, 
will be much like this. In Revelation chapter 1, John sees the risen Christ. And he says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand were held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. How would you respond? Here's how John responded. Here's again how I think each one of us will respond in some measure, although I don't know exactly what it will be like. Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Again, this is the Apostle John, the Apostle whom Jesus loved. I fell at his feet as though dead. But folks, get this. This is, this is coming for us in some measure. Again, I'm not saying it's going to be exactly like this. But I think close, experientially. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I love this. Look at the next line, middle of verse 17. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. We, we will be terrified on some level in his presence. And yet, he lays his hand on us. He says, fear not. For I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. A day where we stand before Christ is coming, before, er, is coming for each one of us. If you know Christ as your Savior, then he will say to you, fear not, enter in to the place that I have prepared for you. But if you do not know him, the Bible says he is going to cast you into that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And there will be no hope. And so on the authority of the word of God, and because in love he has given us these warnings this morning, I plead with you to trust in Christ. Flee to him right now, right where you sit. You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to sign a card. But you must give him your life. He is worthy of it all. What we're going to do here in just a second is baptize these folks. Um, I have, we, we, through discussion and getting to know them a little bit, it's been awesome. Uh, Adam and Leah and Michael and Stephen. Um, it's become abundantly clear that they have fled to Christ alone for salvation. Not Christ and even be 